we'll uh, get up to verse 20 uh, this afternoon and we'll uh, read as we go and unpack it rather than read it all and go through it again. And So we're, we're going through the book of Esther and last time we were kind of setting the scene. So we've had two messages previously. Message number one, if you remember, was introduction where we looked at the context and we looked at the cast, look at the people that we're going to get introduced to as we go along through the book of Esther and uh, looked at some of the, the concepts that are in there. One of, the, one of the things being that the name of God is, is not mentioned in the book of Esther. And we looked at how some people um, really um, didn't want it in the Bible, if the truth be told, because you know God wasn't mentioned there. Kind of an anti-Semitic approach to it, really. But what we said last week and what we're going to see, that despite the, the name of God not being there, the hand of God is ever-present. And, and for us, that's a, a beautiful truth of the sovereignty of God. And we have to be reminded of that. And we need that. We need to know that God's sovereign. We need to know that no matter what it looks like, God is there. And God is moving. And we use the illustration of, of the icebergs and how um, the big, great icebergs, you know, you have the little ones that are moved. And the wind um, moves the iceberg, but it's only the tip of it. And really what's moving those big icebergs is the, the, the water currents that are going on under below and we can't see them, but they're moving them in, into position. We can see the surface winds and what direction it's coming from, but we can't see underneath. And that's what it's like sometimes for the people of God. That you can't see. All you can see is surface wind. All you can see is these things that are coming and in front of you and you can't see at times what God is doing behind the scenes. But God is always working and he's behind every scene. There's no doubt about it. God is there. That's the sovereignty of God. And just because the name of God isn't there. uh, You know, this is one of the great books where God's presence and God's purposes are being fulfilled. So to say that because God's name's not there, he is not there is a nonsense. It's a nonsense. God's at work in the book of Esther. Although it seems like it's unseen. God's at work in our lives. Sometimes we just don't see it. But he's there. He's always, always there. So we're going to pick up now in chapter number two. We were kind of introduced a little bit in uh, chapter number one to this character, this king, Azurus, Ahasuerus, however you want to pronounce his name, Xerxes really, and uh, introduced to him and, and what went on. And we were at the... Uh, Banquet as we witnessed this royal rejection of Vashti, his wife. Do you remember that she was called to come in and perform for the king in his drunken state to show off what he was doing? Remember these banquets that he was holding were to, to court favour so that he could go to war and, and, and enter into this great campaign against Greece. When you get to chapter number two, and we touched on this last week, that you end at chapter one, verse uh, 22. You start at chapter two, verse one, where it says, after these things, what are these things? It's that great battle where ultimately, you know, you get the battle of uh, Thermopylae, where he goes up against these well-trained soldiers. And see, the strength of the Persian army was in their numbers. The Greeks, however, were trained. And we looked at this not that long ago when we, we thought about you know, David's mighty men and the numbers. A Dino certainly, 800 to 1. How was he able to do that? The strength of God, but also he was better trained. And a trained army should be able to fight against the odds. 
But the Medes and the Persians, the Persian Empire, just brought the, their weight of sheer numbers and overwhelmed those enemies. And that was why the Xerxes had all these banquets for these months and courted favour across the provinces because he wanted strength in numbers. And he went with this huge force recorded in history and he is um, sent home, sent packing really. If you've seen 300, the film 300, that kind of deals with that uh, battle of Thermopylae where the Spartans defended against uh, Xerxes and his number. The king is, is sent packing. He, he's off the back of a... Of a uh, 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 um, a milestone in terms of his uh, political career because he's raised all this support. He's you know talked about all the things probably that he's going to do and how the empire's going to grow and actually comes back in defeat. So here he is. And this guy, uh, Xerxes uh, Azarerus, is, is, is a terrible character really. And actually when you look into history you'll find that he's recorded as, as a terrible character. It's said of him on his retreat from Greece after the, the expedition there that he uh, boarded a Phoenician ship along with a number of his troops and that a fearful storm came up. The captain then said to Xerxes that there was no hope unless the ship's load was substantially lightened. So the king turned to his fellow Persians on the deck and said, It is on you that my safety depends. Now let some of you show your regard for the king. And being good citizens, good soldiers, a number of the men bowed the exercise, threw themselves overboard so that the ship might survive and make its way safely to harbour. Xerxes immediately ordered that a golden crown be given to the pilot for preserving the king's life, then ordered the man beheaded for causing the loss of so many Persian lives. A rogue. He's a rogue. Absolute rogue. He's a pig. You allowed to use that word? Too late. He's a pig. That's what he is. He's a pig. But yet, God is working in this. God is working in this. And we're going to see tonight that none of this that happens is any way good morally. We're going from banquet to beauty pageant. And none of it is morally good. None of it's acceptable. None of it you can say, do you know what, that's right. Even Esther and her actions, you can't say that's right. Even Mordecai and his actions, you can't say, oh, that, that, that's really uh, good judgment. The stuff that's going on, none of it's good. What I told you last week, God is an expert of bringing good out of bad things. He's an expert God is on the throne, his purposes will not be thwarted. And even in the midst of all these characters and the things that they're doing, right or wrong, God is moving sovereignly. Now I want you to understand, as much as we can understand, that although God is moving sovereignly in this, he is not controlling people like puppets. You say, how does that work? That's the mystery of God. If I could work that out, I would be God. Here's what I do know. Each one of these people exercised free will. But yet God's purposes were always advancing. How amazing is that? That's the true sovereignty of God. That he doesn't have to puppet us around. But yet his purposes are always advancing. That's how above and beyond God is when it comes to sovereignty. It's amazing. It's amazing. Spurgeon said, 
There's no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. You don't resist it, I rest in it. God is in control. No matter what I see, no matter what I face, God is on the throne. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, again, you know, we're going to look through this and, and, and see, and again, you can't say that these events are all brilliant. They're not. But what we can say for sure is we're going to see God work. So let's read verses 1 to 4, and we're going to firstly have a look at and see that the search is decreed. So after these things, when the wrath of King Azarus was appeased, he remembered Vashti, what he had done, and what was decreed against her. Now, this, this guy's feeling sorry for himself. He's licking his wounds, right? He's off the back of probably his biggest military defeat. I mean, the Persian Empire was vast, and it was used to getting its own way. Not this time. So back he comes, you know, and he starts to think about the events that have gone on in chapter number one. And, he, and, he, and verse two says, Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces, provinces sorry, of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins into Shushan, the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of Haggai, the chamberlain, I'm sorry, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things be for purification be given to them, and let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti, and the king thing pleased the king, and he did so. So here we have this search, search that's decreed. The reason the king wants love. He wants love. And Vashti, as the queen, I have no doubt that he loved her. The king had many sexual objects. But there's a difference between love and sex. Now, the modern world has tried to convince us something different than that. That sex is more about pleasure than procreation. But the reality is that we've lost love and we've replaced it with gratification. And gratification will not fulfill like love will. It just won't. It's temporary. So here comes the king. He comes back and he, you know, he, he, he put it a better word, he's lonely. Lots of women around him, but not a wife, not a queen. So this uh, search is decreed. Now the king's advisors, and I love this, remember I talked to you about these, that just as soon as you think about king's advisors, you get this picture of these little weasels. Don't you? Why do you think that they are so keen for the king to go and have this search and get somebody else? I think it's primarily for the king's happiness. I don't think so. I think they're a little worried that the king might do something rash, try and circumnavigate the law of the Medes and the Persians and bring Vastai back. What happens when Vastai comes back? She's going to go after the ones that were in the ear of the king and said what? You can't let her get away with that. Now Vashti, I don't believe, would have any time for Mordecai or others, so that wasn't God's purpose. But these advisors, you know, using some sanctified imagination, is that they're looking after themselves, they're interested in themselves. So this search is decreed. That's the reason, I think. Then the verse 3 tells us the requirements that this, uh, you know, uh, basically search is going to go out to find all the most beautiful women and then find a prime candidate 
for the king. Let the king, this is verse 3, appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather together all the fair young virgins and the Shushan, the palace, to the house of the king, and the custody of Haggai, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, that their things be for purification, things for purification be given unto them. And let the maiden which pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. So this is the search. And again, this is not good circumstantial practice. There's nothing good about this. You know, the, the king, he's a tyrant. He's a tyrant. But God is still using this. Because it's this process that ultimately brings Esther to a point where she's a new queen. God's in it. Doesn't make it right what's going on. But we do know that God's in there and God's working. And God's working bad out of good. He's an expert at it. But let, let, me, let me take this point a little bit further. Ultimately, God is moving in there, but getting back to free will and choice. Why are Israel, first of all, in the captivity under the Babylonians, then under the rule of the Medes and the Persians? Why? Because of sin. Because of disobedience. It's their choice that's brought them to that place. So the lesson for us is that, yes, God can work and will work good out of bad. But how often... Do we get ourselves in the bad and then cry out to God to fix it? When ultimately the truth should be that we obey him and we trust him and we don't get in the bad in the first place. Now, I'm thankful God is patient and long-suffering. I've been in bad places and God has been good. But we shouldn't have to be there. I mean, God is, is amazing in what he's doing here. He's preserving his people. He's preserving the messianic line. He's saving them. He saved us through that. Ultimately, long term, along the story of redemption. But in the spiritual application, they didn't have to be there. And we don't have to be in, in the place of, of bad the situation that they found themselves in. But I am thankful, as I've said, that God is willing and able to work, even in the worst of circumstances. So the search is decreed. Then the strategy is decided. Let me first five. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadashah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. For she hath neither father nor mother. And the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and her mother were dead, took for his own daughter. And so it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together in Shushan the palace, to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also onto the king's house to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. So here we have the strategy decided. And verse 70, it tells us that there's risk. And this is where we're introduced to Mordecai. 
Mordecai is, is again one of the cast in this story. He appears a lot, 58 times. He's named in the back, this book seven times. He's identified as a Jew. His ancestor, as we're told here in these verses, was uh, Kish. And he was taken to Babylon. And he hadn't returned. He'd stayed. And he, we find him here present in the, in the time of the Medes and the Persians. The difference between the Medes and the Persians is the Medes and the Persians were often a lot fairer to those that they, they took into captivity. So wild times might have been harder under the Babylonians. For a lot of, of Jews um, that were there in the captivity, they prospered during the uh, rule of the Medes and the Persians due to their different uh, strategies in terms of how they dealt with captive peoples. Esther is Mordecai's cousin, adopted daughter. We looked at this last week. Her Persian name means star. Hebrew name, Hadasha, means myrtle. Um, she's precious to Mordecai. But she's taken as part of this search for um, the next queen. And ultimately, that's a risky strategy. But we're going to see that it pays off. Look at the reward, verse 9. What happens in the mid made him pleased him and she obtained kindness of him and speedily give her things for purification. Now Haggai, this is a Gentile, he's the kind of uh, keeper of all of these things, uh, keeper of the women and she's obtained favour. Again, this is God's grace manifesting itself. God's presence here. Same as uh, Joseph. Turn to Genesis 39. You know this, but we want to remind ourselves of this. That God is an expert of bringing good out of bad. An expert. Genesis 39 verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favour in sight of the keeper of the prison. Joseph found favour in Egypt. And ultimately we know that God was using those events. None of those events were right. Nothing that happened to Joseph was right. But God was there and God was working. Turn to Daniel chapter number 1. Verse 9. Here we find Daniel taken into captivity. Daniel 1 verse 9. Now God had brought Daniel into favour and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. Joseph found favour. Daniel found favour. And God uses those events for the preservation of his people and ultimately the line, the messianic line. Daniel, I believe, was absolutely influential in how he taught and how that filtered down into the book of Ezra and the events that take place there. So God is using these people and Esther here finds favour. And so this is the thing that God is so great that he can work in the midst of what really is a search for women to be used and abused by the king so that he can pick the one he likes the best. Even in the midst of that depravity, even in the midst of that situation, God is working. And Mordecai has been a bit risky here. But the reward comes. Was Mordecai right? Morally? But God was working. God was working. So the search is decreed. The strategy is decided. Then next we want to see that the secret is determined. Look at verse 10. 
Esther had not shown her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. Don't tell them you're a Jew. Keep it secret. Don't admit to who you are. Now this is what Mordecai tells her to do. She was a Jew. She was born into the Jewish race. But Mordecai says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Now again, <laughs> morally, morally, is it right? It's a hard one, isn't it? All I know is God's working in it. God's working in it. God's working. The quest is made, you know, don't tell anybody. Just go there, live in peace. You tell anybody, you're in trouble. You're going to be in terrible trouble. Just, just keep it a secret. But yet God is going to work in this, even in the midst of this. And the response in verse 11 is simply, Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what would become of her. So Mordecai knows the risk in this. He knows the danger she's in if anybody finds out that she's a Jew. So he'd requested, and Esther responds and keeps silent. I wonder how many times. You know, because in between all these verses, there's, there's time. How many times Esther would have been asked, So, who's your family? Where do you come from? And what would she say? She'd have to come up with a story, a backstory. What would that be? It would be a lie. Question. Is it ever all right to lie? (laughs) All right, all right. (laughs) Now, how often and when do you... (laughs) Rahab, good example. Turn to James chapter 2, verse 25. Listen, I've sat through Pastor Moore's ethics class and it will fry your brain. Christian ethics, ethics in general. You can convince somebody one thing, spend half an hour, bamboozle them, and and they'll they'll admit to anything and do anything. James 2, verse 25. Here James talks about Rahab. You know, Rahab and the spies and what goes on there in Joshua. Rahab, to, uh, Rahab 2.25. James 2.25 says, Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and sent them out another way? Now, some people will maybe just say it was just the event, but part of that was she had to lie. Is it all right to lie? Sometimes, I guess. Circumstantial. So what's going on with Esther here? She's lying. And, and, and honestly, I can't see how she's just had to tell one lie. She's had to tell multiple lies. And Mordecai's had to tell lies. So again, you know, morally, some of the stuff that's going on is questionable. From Mordecai. From Esther. Definitely from the king. But ultimately, God is still working in the midst of human will and human endeavour. God is still weaving and moving his purposes forward so that ultimately Esther's going to be on the throne. 
You want to say God's not here because his name's not mentioned? Only God could work and weave that. Only God. So the search, the strategy, and the secret have all taken place. We wrap it up, verses 12 to 20, where the summons is definite. Look at verse 12. Now when every maid's turn was come to go into King Azur's, that after that she had been twelve months, according to the manner of the woman, for so were the days of her purification accomplished, to wit, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with sweet odours, and with other things for the purifying of women. So this is a twelve-month beauty program, ladies, if you're interested in this. <laughs> Uh, I'm just thinking, you know, again, if I hadn't preached this morning's message about enemies of the church, we could make merchandise off this, couldn't we? The Esther Beauty Program. (laughs) Verse 13. Then thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given to her to go out, uh, to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. In the evening she went, and the morrow she returned in the second house of the women. Again, there's nothing good going on here. To the custody of Shazgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines, she came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her that she was called by name. Now in the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abiel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go in to the king. She required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of women, appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all of them that looked upon her. Again, this is God's hand working. So Esther was taken into the king, Azur Azurus, I still can't pronounce that properly, into his royal, I call him Xerxes, into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins. So they set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast to all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast, And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. And when the virgins were gathered together a second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not yet shown her kindred nor her people, as Mordecai charged her, for Esther did the commandment of Mordecai, like as when she was brought up with him. So here we have there in verse 12 going on that the summons is definite. This has been decreed. The, the process is happening. This beauty pageant is going to go on. And the, the ritual is a 12-month, a year-long uh, beauty treatment that each of the woman, women were to go through. But because of the providence of God, because of the hand of God, Haggai uh, gave Esther special treatment and the best place in the house for her and her maids. And because of this, um, all these events, and Esther finding favour, and obviously she's beautiful to look on, look upon, of course she is. The approval is found for the, from the king. Verse 17, the result. Esther wins favour. The king loved Esther above all the women. She obtained grace and favour in the sight in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen. 
instead of Vashti. The king loved Esther. This is what he was looking for to fill the void. Vashti was gone. But he's found another that he can set his affection upon. And the king is so delighted with this. Look at verse 18. That he makes another feast. These kings love their banquets. This is the fourth feast really that we're introduced to. Including the, the one for the women. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servant, even Esther's feast. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state. No doubt, you know, there's, there's, there's a whole a celebration across the empire. The king has found his queen. Gifts are given, days off, servants set free, uh, whatever it may be. Taxes might have been cancelled for the day. Who knows? But the king is celebrating. He feels good because he's found his queen and he wants everybody to know about it. Esther has now risen to the throne. We've gone from banquet to beauty pageant. And God has been moving in each one of these scenes. Terrible events have taken place, no doubt. But God is there. It's an outrage, really, how the king treated his wife fast time. But yet it's because of that that this search is sent out. And because of this search, Esther finds favour with all that she comes upon, even though there's a bit of a ambiguity of whether this is right or wrong in terms of the lies and the principle of it God is working it out what if I've told you that God is an expert of bringing good out of bad, his sovereign purposes will not be thwarted even in the midst of the depravity of men and the things that we do, God is still there God is still patient even though Israel had committed spiritual uh, adultery after adultery that they had forsaken that God He brought them out of Egypt. God is still working with those people. Why? Because a sovereign God is also a promise-keeping God. Because a sovereign God will keep any promise he makes. That's our God. That God had made promises to Israel that he will fulfill. And for us tonight, as we sit here and we think about the sovereignty of God, that even though we can't understand you know, how God would even be in these events, he is in these events. And for us, as we think about that and we take it to the spiritual application for the church today, that we need to remind ourselves that no matter what's going on out there, no matter how murky it gets, no matter how difficult it gets, no matter how hard it gets, no matter if we cannot see the name of God out in the world today, we understand that the sovereignty of God determines and dictates that he is there and that every promise he has made to us as his church, he will fulfill. Do you believe that this afternoon, church? Turn to John chapter 14. Because I want to leave us encouraged in the sovereignty of God. John chapter 14, and you know these verses, but let's, let's rejoice in these verses. Let's take our theology and let's apply it so that our hearts might not be troubled. John 14 verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. What does that mean? <laughs> it means let not your heart be troubled. 
Doesn't mean anything else. You don't need any theological degrees. You don't need to be an expert in Greek. This is what the Lord says. Let not your heart be troubled. Why? You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And God's not a liar. He's not capable of lying. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's a promise from God. Oh, the Lord has tarried. He hasn't returned. Not yet. But he will. Why? Because he said so. He said so. Oh, but the world is a mess and does not just tell us that God's not interested and maybe he's forgotten about us and he's walked away and look at the state of it. No. Tells us that God's long-suffering, that he's merciful. But we have to remember that in the midst of all that, God's promises are sure and true. Let not your heart be troubled. Is your heart troubled tonight, saint? Are you downtrodden in the events that are going on in the world? Take strength. Take heart. God has promises. One of those promises is that he's coming back. The book of Esther, we don't see the name of God, but we see the hand of God. And it's further evidence to us of the sovereignty of God. Don't doubt God. He's an expert of bringing good out of bad. We close tonight, this afternoon, whatever you want to call it, with Esther on the throne as queen. And God is going to use Esther for such a time. And the people will be preserved. And God's promises will stand. For us tonight, we're here for such a time. What is it that God's calling us to? What is it that God wants to lead us to? What decisions have we made that maybe haven't been in the best keeping with the will of God? I know that God wants us tonight to get our hearts right, to be pointed to him and stand upon those promises, every promise. Not let him go. And we do that no matter where we're at tonight or no matter what's going on in the world. God is an expert of bringing good out of bad. Let's pray.